Are we on? Are we on? We're on, Mr. President. A few minutes ago, the United States ambassadors to every country in the world told the leaders of those nations what I'm about to tell you. Jack, I want you to draw me like one of your French girls. Hey, Harry. Yeah, right. You know, we're sitting on four million pounds of fuel, one nuclear weapon, and a thing that has 270,000 moving parts built by the lowest bidder. Oh, makes you feel good, doesn't it? Yeah. Joe! Bill! It's coming! It's headed right for us! It's already here. Everybody underground now! something extraordinary extraordinary and disturbing that is you recall what you said about how polar melting might disrupt the north atlantic current yes well i think it's happening if this damn bus there won't be nothing between here and wilshire boulevard left to burn it seems to me that the worst is over Can you fly this plane and land it? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. Job, ma'am. Go where they tell me to go. <laughs> Welcome to Podcast 42, the podcast that talks about life, the universe, and everything. As you may have guessed by that introduction, today I'm going to talk about another of my favourite movie genres, the disaster movie. Fantastic. But before I start that, 
Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and spread the word about it. And also to the YouTube channel, Criscuit. C-H-R-I-S-C-U-I-T. And I'm still constantly adding content on there too, including, for you football fans, a little bit of Euro 2020 predictions. In fact, I recently reached 250 video uploads, so that's something to celebrate. And also, thanks for listening to this so far. If you made it through these episodes, you've obviously been with me for a while. And your feedback's always appreciated. Any requests, show ideas, or just general feedback to podcast42 at gmail.com. That's all words. Podcast 42. All words. No numbers, no fours, no twos. Okay, let's get moving on today's show. So what exactly is a disaster movie? been planning for the worst, so I hope you'll bear with me and listen to what I have to say. I would say it's completely obvious what's what's going on here. I mean, it's a it's a zombie invasion. Fuck! That's our only chance. Don't listen to him! We've got to stay here till help arrives. Help from where? Joey, we have something here for our special visitors. Would you like to have it? I thought we'd have more time. Lay her down and smack them, yak them. What a pisser. So when do we let the people know? We're gonna all stay together. Well, if you'll excuse me, I've got a bit of an headache. I think I'll mix myself a daisy powder. Okay, I think you generally get the idea. There's some clips there from some movies that we will discuss as we move through this episode. Okay, so what is a disaster movie? Did I say disaster? I went all southern after last week's words episode. I meant disaster, a good northern word. A disaster film or a disaster movie is a film genre that has an impending or an ongoing disaster as its subject or primary plot device. Such disasters may include natural disasters, accidents, military terrorist attacks, or even the highly unlikely pandemics. Oh dear. A subgenre of action films, these films usually feature some degree of build-up, the disaster itself, and sometimes the aftermath, usually from the point of view of specific individual characters or their families, or portraying the survival tactics of different people. These films often feature large casts of actors and multiple plot lines, focusing on the characters' attempts to avert, escape or cope with the disaster and its aftermath. The genre came to particular prominence during the 1970s, with the release of high-profile films such as the classics Airport in 1970, followed in quick succession by The Poseidon Adventure in 1972, Earthquake in 74 and The Towering Inferno in 1974 also. More about all of those very soon. The casts were generally made up of familiar character actors, and sometimes big names. Once the disaster begins in the film, the characters are usually confronted with human weaknesses, often falling in love, and almost always finding a villain to blame. The films usually feature a persevering hero or heroine, Charlton Heston, Steve McQueen, the like, and they are called upon to lead the struggle against the threat. In many cases, the evil or selfish individuals are the first to succumb to the conflagration. Disaster themes are almost as old as the film medium itself. One of the earliest was Fire, back in 1901. Yes, 1901. That was made by James Williamson in England. The silent film portrayed a burning house and the firemen who arrived to quench the flames and rescue the inhabitants. Origins of the genre can also be found in In Nacht und Ice, In Night and Ice, that's in 1912, and was about the recent sinking of the Titanic. Lots more Titanic to follow, trust me. There was also August Blom's Danish silent offering, Atlantis, in 1913, about a liner, which sunk, very similar to Titanic. 
It was criticised for that actually, even back in 1913. There was Noah's Ark in 1928, the biblical story from Genesis about the Great Flood, and that one is representative of the transition from silent movies to talkies, although it is essentially a hybrid film known as a part talkie. Yes, I did research this. And it used the new Vitaphone sound on disc system. Most scenes are silent, with a synchronised music score and sound effects, in particular the biblical ones, while some scenes have dialogue. There are the RKO offerings, Deluge in 1933, about tidal waves devastating New York City. King Kong in 1933 also, remember we discussed that in a previous episode, about the gigantic gorilla rampaging again through New York City. Most disasters do seem to centre around New York City. They have a lot of problems though. See the episode that I did of Monsters and Men for more information on King Kong though. There was also The Last Days of Pompeii from RKO in 1935, dealing with the Mount Vesuvius volcanic eruption in 79 AD and featuring the one and the only Basil Rathbone as Pontius Pilate. Basil Rathbone, a name you might be familiar with, and famous for playing Sherlock Holmes in 14 Hollywood movies made between 1939 and 1946. He was also in the radio series. Moving on with the disaster movies, there was John Ford's The Hurricane in 1937, which concluded with the striking sequence of Tropical Cyclone ripping through a fictional South Pacific island. The drama San Francisco in 1936 depicted the historic 1906 San Francisco earthquake Lots more about earthquakes to follow, while In Old Chicago, the movie in 1937, recreated the Great Chicago Fire, which burned through the city in 1871. There was Carol Reed's 1939 movie, The Stars Look Down, and that examines a catastrophe at a coal mine in the northeast of England, my homeland. But definitely more about that movie to follow. At the dawn of the 50s, and inspired by the end of World War II and the beginning of the Atomic Age, science fiction films of the 1950s included When Worlds Collide in 51, The War of the Worlds in 53, and Godzilla, King of the Monsters in 1956. All routinely used world disasters as plot elements. The trend would continue with The Deadly Mantis in 57, The Day the Earth Caught Fire in 1961, such great titles, and 1965's A Crack in the World. I went almost into my Orson Welles voice there. Okay, volcanic disasters would also feature in films such as The Devil at 4 o'clock in 1961, starring Spencer Tracy and Frank Sinatra. There was also the 1969 epic Krakatoa, East of Java, starring Maximilian Schell. As in the silent film era, the sinking of the Titanic would continue to be a popular disaster with filmmakers. Werner Klingler and Herbert Selpin released the epic film Titanic in 1943. The film was soon banned in Germany and its director Selpin was allegedly executed. Now I looked a bit more into this and it's quite a, a horrific story of Nazi Germany. In 1942, on the set of Titanic, after having experienced many time-consuming problems caused by drunk German soldiers and soldiers acting as extras for the film, Selpin made several remarks critical of the German military at the time. He was denounced for these remarks by Zerlet Olfenius, once his personal friend and, upon failing to retract his statements during a meeting with Joseph Goebbels, was arrested on the 31st of July 1942. He was grabbed by the Goebbels. Oh dear. I shouldn't make a joke of that, but that is funny. The day after his arrest, Selpin was found dead in his cell, hanging by his trouser suspenders. A rumour circulated that he had been murdered on the orders of Goebbels himself, 
as the Gestapo had taken an interest in the matter and Goebbels considered it more prudent to sacrifice the director than spar with the Gestapo. According to the rumour, around midnight on the 31st of July, 1st of August, 1942, two guards entered Selpin's cell and hanged him from the bars of a ceiling window, using his trouser suspenders as a noose. For the records, Goebbels had the death scene secretly photographed and filed away. Then he sent a terse letter to Selpin's wife, notifying her of her husband's suicide. Selpin was only 38. Despite Goebbels' attempt to conceal the truth, Selpin's brutal death quickly spread to Berlin's film colony, who were deeply angered at Zerlet Orthanius. Goebbels retaliated by issuing a proclamation decreeing that anyone shunning the screenwriter would answer to him in person, and be subjected to the same fate as Selpin, in fact almost admitting he was executed. He also ordered that Selpin's name not be mentioned on the Titanic set or elsewhere. The production of Titanic was subsequently completed by Werner Klingler, who was also not credited. The film itself, which cost about 4 million Reichmarks at the time, or a modern equivalent of 180 million US dollars, and it was almost completely suppressed by Goebbels, who worried that the ship's disaster would demoralise the German public. It was shown a few times in occupied countries, and later in a re-edited version in East Germany. However, four clips from the film wound up in another British Titanic film in 1958. Selbin's film was a staple for all Titanic films that followed, and scenes became stock footage for the British version. Clifton Webb and Barbara Stanick starred in the 1953 20th Century Fox production Titanic, followed by the highly regarded British film A Night to Remember in 1958. The British action-adventure film The Last Voyage in 1960 while not about the Titanic disaster, but a predecessor to the Poseidon adventure, starred Robert Stack as a man desperately attempting to save his wife, Dorothy Malone, and a child trapped in a sinking ocean liner. The film concluded with a dramatic sinking of the ship, and was nominated for an Oscar for Best Visual Effects. Disaster movies often do get nominated for effects. But back on track, additional precursors to the popular disaster films of the 70s include The High and the Mighty from 1954. I actually watched this recently. Stars John Wayne and Robert Stack as pilots of a crippled airplane attempting to cross the ocean. A good movie, it really is a good movie. I do like my 1950s movies though, if I was honest. It's a good guilty pleasure. There was Zero Hour in 1957, written by Arthur Haley, who also penned the 1968 novel Airport. Zero Hour was about an airplane crew that succumbs to food poisoning. There was Jetstorm and Jet Over the Atlantic, two 1959 films both featuring attempts to blow up an airplane in mid-flight. There was The Crowded Sky, so many airplane movies in the 60s which depicts a mid-air collision and the doomsday flight in 1966, written by Rod Serling. We've mentioned him a few times in the last few episodes, I'm sure. And also starring Edmund O'Brien as a disgruntled aerospace engineer who plants a barometric pressure bomb on an airliner built by his former employer, set to explode when the airliner descends for landing. Anyway, that brought us to the 1970s peak. The golden age of the disaster film began in 1970, with the release of Airport, a huge financial success, earning more than $100 million, about $590 million adjusted in today's prices at the box office. The film was directed by George Seaton and starred Burt Lancaster, Dean Martin, George Kennedy, Jacqueline Bissett and Helen Hayes, huge stars. While not exclusively focused on a disaster, in this case, an airplane crippled by the explosion of a bomb, the film established the blueprint of multiple plotlines acted out by an all-star cast. Airport was nominated for 10 Academy Awards, including Best Picture, and also winning Best Supporting Actress for Hayes, with the 1972 release of The Poseidon Adventure, another huge financial success, notching an impressive $84 million in gross theatrical rentals, 
that's $490 million adjusted for today's prices. It was then the disaster film officially became a movie going craze. Poseidon Adventure was directed by Ronald Neiman, starring Gene Hackman, Ernest Borgnine, Shelley Winters and Red Buttons, again big names of the time. The film detailed survivors' attempts at escaping a sinking ocean liner overturned by a giant wave. The wave had been triggered by an earthquake. The Poseidon Adventure was nominated for eight Academy Awards, including Best Supporting Actress for Shelley Winters, and winning for Original Song, and receiving a Special Achievement Award for Visual Effects. The trend really reached its zenith in 1974, with the release of The Towering Inferno, Earthquake and Airport 1975, the first airport sequel. The competing films enjoyed staggering success at the box office, The Towering Inferno earning $116 million, $548 million in today's money. Earthquake earned 79 million, which is 376 million in today's money. And Airport 1975, slightly less, but a respectable 47 million dollars. Again, adjusted for today's prices, 235 million dollars. Arguably the greatest of the 1970s disaster films, and we will come to this shortly, was The Towering Inferno, and was a joint venture of 20th Century Fox and Warner Brothers. It was produced by Erwin Allen, eventually known as the Master of Disaster, as he had previously helmed the Poseidon Adventure and later produced The Swarm, Beyond the Poseidon Adventure and When Time Ran Out. It was directed by John Guillermin and starring Paul Newman, Steve McQueen, William Holden and Faye Dunaway, again four huge stars. The film depicts a huge fire engulfing the tallest building in the world and firefighters' attempts at rescuing occupants. I actually said rescuing octopuses, which I did edit out but I thought it'd be funny to leave in, and they were trapped on the top floor. A top floor full of octopuses, or is it octopi? Anyway. The film was nominated for eight Academy Awards, including Best Picture, it won for Best Cinematography, it won Best Film Editing, and won Best Original Song. Earthquake was also honoured with four Academy Award nominations for its impressive special effects of a massive earthquake levelling the city of Los Angeles. It won for Best Sound, and received a Special Achievement Award for Visual Effects. Earthquake was directed by Mark Robson and also starred Charlton Heston, Ava Gardner, Genevieve Bougeol, George Kennedy and Lorne Green. Again, huge stars. It was also noted as the first film to utilise Sensoround, where massive subwoofer speakers were installed in theatres to recreate the vibrating sensation of an earthquake. I've actually been in three earthquakes, actually quite a few earthquakes, but three major ones, and they're quite scary I can tell you that. In the 70s, there were several made-for-TV movies that also capitalised on the craze including Heatwave in 74, The Day the Earth Moved, also in 74, Hurricane, Flood and Fire in 74, 76 and 77 respectively. The trend continued on a larger scale with The Hindenburg in 75 starring George C. Scott, there was The Cassandra Crossing in 76 with Burt Lancaster, Two Minute Warning in 76 with Charlton Heston, Black Sunday with Robert Shaw and Roller Coaster also in Sense Around in 1977 and that starred the late, great George Siegel. There was Damnation Alley also in 77 starring Jean-Michel Vincent, Avalanche in 78 starring Rock Hudson, Grey Lady Down in 78 again Charlton Heston. Hurricane, a 1979 remake of John Ford's 1937 film, starred Jason Robards, and City on Fire in 79 starring Barry Newman. There was just a glut of disaster movies in the 70s. The genre did begin to burn out in the late 70s, when the big budget films as The Swarm which I mentioned earlier, Meteor in 79, The Concorde which was Airport 79, and Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, and when time ran out, they all performed poorly at the box office, signalling declining interest in the disaster film product, and it was also a time when cinema attendances were starting to fall. 
although there was some success with the spoof disaster movie. The Big Bus in 1976 was an earlier disaster movie spoof, it failed to be a hit. The end of the trend was marked by the 1980 comedy Airplane, which fondly spoofed the cliches of the genre to surprising box office success, and there was a sequel of its own, Airplane 2 The Sequel, in 1982. Very funny movies, and I did play a few clips earlier, maybe we'll have some more from Airplane later. Ok, let's move on into the 90s. These are just precautionary measures. Um, we don't want to start a panic. Did anybody feel that? Ladies and gentlemen, please remain calm. Please just stay calm. Time's up. of the planet, a species has the technology to prevent technology its own extinction. Piece of cake. Look, you want to compare brain pans? I won the Westinghouse Prize when I was 12. Big deal. Published at 19, so what? I got a double doctorate from MIT at 22. Chemistry and geology. I taught at Princeton for two and a half years. Why do I do this? Because the money's good, the scenery changes, and they let me use explosives, okay? Ah, some classics there, you might recognise a couple of those. But in the 90s, the resurgence of big budget productions of the genre, aided by the advancements in CGI technology during that time. There were such films as Twister, Independence Day, Daylight with Sylvester Stallone, Dante's Peak and Volcano, Hard Rain, Deep Impact and Armageddon. All fantastic movies, and right up my street. If you like this genre, they're all for you from the 90s. In 1997, James Cameron produced, wrote and directed a version of the epic story, Titanic. Yes, it gets mentioned once again. The film combined romance with intricate special effects. It was a massive success. It became the highest grossing film, which it remained for, I think, 12 years, with over $2.1 billion worldwide, and winning 11 Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Director. But we'll come to more of that later. Without wanting to dwell on the 90s too long, that's pretty much a complete potted history of disaster movies in the 20th century. Yes, I know I didn't dwell very long at all on the 90s, but there will be more to come. In fact, how about I have a good old top 10 of my favourite disaster movies. 
I'm going to steer clear of monster movies. I mentioned many of those in the previous episode of Monsters and Men, which was devoted to that genre too. And no alien movies. The likes of Independence Day and Mars Attacks, they're going to get their own episode, trust me. And no zombie movies either. They can have their own episode at some point, I'm sure. Okay, I've decided to base this on the following categories. And I'll try and give each a good representation. Firstly, epidemics and pandemics. Topical, I guess. Shipwrecks, atomic and nuclear. Did I say nuclear or nuclear? Who knows? Who cares? Transportation. Buses, ships, the like. End of days. Ah, the apocalypse. Armageddon. The rapture. Natural disasters. And finally, man-made disasters. I think that that should just about cover it. And as I say that, I now realise this could easily be a top 25. Oh dear. Let's see how far we get through the top 10. I'll do this in no particular order to start with. Though at the end of this podcast, I will give a Podcast 42 Top 10 rundown of my all-time favourite disaster movies. At the moment. Sound good? Agreed? Thank you, kids. Good. Let's go. So hold on to your hats. Buckle in, buckaroo. Hold on to your jack. And yippee-ki-yay, motherfu- Oh, wrong genre. In fact, let me let somebody else do this. Everybody hang on. This could get a little rough. Engaging invasive radar. Hey guys, remember we're we're heroes now. That incident with me and the gun on the asteroid, let's keep that under wraps, alright? Hey, what do you think this is? The scenic railway? I'm just saving Scandinavia in a bit of trouble. Scandinavia, yeah, come on, let's get this propped up. Oh, I don't see no worry. I don't see why we should save our good self just for our Joe's benefit. Some more classics there, and maybe one at the end that definitely isn't so familiar to you. And that's where I'm going to start my top ten. Again, in no particular order. But firstly, I'm going to start with The Stars Look Down. Now, this is a British film from 1940, based on A.J. Cronin's 1935 novel of the same title, about injustices in a mining town in North East England. The film, co-scripted by Cronin and directed by Carol Reed, stars Michael Redgrave as Davy Fenwick and Margaret Lockwood as Jenny Sunley. The film is actually a New York Times critic's pick and is listed in the New York Times Guide to the Best 1000 Movies Ever Made. As I said, you might have never heard of this movie, but it is a great movie. A quick summary of the movie. Sir Michael Redgrave plays Davy Fenwick. He leaves his mining village on a university scholarship intent on returning to better support the miners against the owners. But he falls in love with Jenny, Margaret Lockwood, who gets him to marry her and return home as a local school teacher before finishing his degree. Davy finds he is ill at ease in this role, the more so when he realises Jenny still loves her former boyfriend. When he finds that his father and other miners are going to have to continue working on possibly deadly coal seams, he decides to act. The young man makes a stand when he discovers lives are at risk, and also finds himself fighting to save his marriage. When Jenny's ex-boyfriend, the ambitious Joe Gowlin, played by Emlyn Williams, reappears, and it leads to a clash with Davy, and central to the story is the flooding disaster of the mine at Scupper Flats, and there are many luckless miners trapped as the waters rise and there is shrinking air. For the time, this is very well filmed, 
and the film's sense of reality does come and go a little bit, but there are very poignant scenes, especially between the working class miners and the rich and mean owners. It does give a good documentation of northern pit towns at the time, I guess, although I wasn't there. I won't spoil the plot too much for you, but it is a good disaster move. During production, a week of filming was undertaken at Great Clifton and at St Helens Colliery, Siddick in Cumberland, not too far from where I'm from. This was followed by seven weeks of shooting at Denham Studios and Twickenham Studios in London, where an elaborate pit head was simulated. There is also a shot at Derwent Crossings looking towards Moss Bay Pig Iron Works in Workington. The railway station actually used in the movie was Workington Central, on the Workington to Cleetermoor line. Of course, that well-known commuter belt. Several shots of Middle Row and Back Row were filmed in Northside, a village at the northern end also of the town of Workington. Later the set was moved to Shepperton Studios for another week of shooting. The original set of the pit head was used to make up a huge composite set of 40,000 square yards, then the largest exterior set ever constructed for a British movie. The set consisted of a replica of the Workington pit where the location work had been done, including the pit head complete with cage, ramp and outer buildings and rows of miners' cottages. Pit ponies from the Cumberland mines were used and the miners' costumes consisted of clothes purchased from colliery workers. The film also provided a rare character role for Margaret Lockwood. She was one of Britain's most popular film stars of the 1930s and 40s. Her film appearances included The Lady Vanishes, Night Train to Munich, The Man in Grey and The Wicked Lady in 1945. She was nominated for the BAFTA Award for Best British Actress for the 1955 film Cast a Dark Shadow. She also starred in the television series Justice from 1971 to 1974. Interestingly though, she was born on the 15th of September 1916 in Karachi in British India, British at the time, and she was born to Henry Francis Lockwood, an English administrator of a railway company, and his Scottish third wife Margaret Evelyn Waugh. Anyway, I digress, back to the movie. The film was actually released in the United States a year and a half after the British premiere. The opening and end credits were changed and were supplemented with a voiceover narration by Lionel Barrymore. In addition, the departing scenes and dialogue at the end between Davy and his mother, they were cut. I think there was something lost in translation with the accents. In the original version, the opening credits appear against establishing shots of the pit head and the men emerging from underground and walking down towards the pit owner to begin their strike. The US version uses a plain background for the main title and an explanatory voiceover that lessens the graphic impact of the original. The US version ends with the camera rising above the pit as the Lord's Prayer is spoken after the disaster, with verses added and a final shot of heavenly clouds and a longer voiceover. The original version has the first line of the Lord's Prayer as the camera rises to the black sky above the pit. It then fades into the final scenes as Davy's mother is downstairs, preparing her son's sandwiches for his return to work at the pit. Davy emerges down the stairs dressed not in work clothes but in a suit. He tells his mother that he's going to work for the Union. His mother says, You're all I have left now, and gives him an apple for the train journey. He goes to the front door and turns back to his mother, who stands at the hearth. The final shot is an exterior of the cottage, with Davy leaving while his mother watches from the windows. The Stars Look Down is an utterly compelling mix of social realism and highly crafted cinematic art, a well-mounted piece of filmmaking, with Reed drawing good performances from a talented cast and handling most scenes, particularly the nail-biting, tragic, if predictable climax. You have to remember when this movie was actually made. It was some two decades before the kitchen sink cinema of the British New Wave. This is a serious, committed film about life in a northern mining community. 
The central romance, though by no means all roses, dates the picture. Redgrave, an idealistic miner's son, goes to university and temporarily forgets his political resolve when he marries Margaret Lockwood. But the mining sequences have a degree of authenticity and the film ends with a rousing call for nationalisation of the industry to purge the old greeds. For me, it's a gem from a golden age of cinema. Carol Reed, the director, was quite young at the time. He was 34. Examples of his subsequent movies are The Third Man in 1949, with Orson Welles as Harry Lyme, Mutiny on the Bounty in 62, with Marlon Brando, Trevor Howard and Richard Harris, and the 1968 Oliver, well actually, there might be an episode about a bit of Oliver in the future. Bear that in mind if you still listen. But that was a classic, with Ron Moody as Fagin and Oliver Reed as the villain of the piece, Bill Sykes. All of these movies from Carol Reed though are real classics. The Stars Look Down is of its time, but definitely worth a look on a quiet Sunday afternoon. Anyway, time to move on. Where next? Ah yes, let's pay a visit to Aunt Meg's house for steak and eggs in Wakita, Oklahoma. Yes, you guessed it. The Ultimate Tornado Chaser Movie Produced by Steven Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment With financial backing from Warner Brothers Pictures and Universal Pictures Actually, in return, Warner Brothers was given the North American distribution rights While Universal's joint venture distribution company, United International Pictures, UIP Obtained international distribution rights That's a good split the original concept and 10-page story were presented to Amblin Entertainment in 1992 Written by Jeffrey Hilton under the title Catch the Wind Seems appropriate. Steven Spielberg was intrigued by the idea and presented the concept to writer Michael Crichton. Yes, Michael Crichton of Jurassic Park fame. Crichton and his wife, Anne-Marie Martin, were paid a reported $2.5 million to write the screenplay, which made Twister the single most expensive screenplay ever written at the time. Spielberg himself was originally attached to direct the project, and directors such as James Cameron, John Badham, and Robert Zemeckis were also in talks to helm the film before Jan de Bont signed onto Twister after leaving Godzilla due to creative differences. Twister is set in Wakita, Oklahoma, and the real town of Wakita. It served as the hometown of Lois Smith's character, Meg, and the actual town used during filming. A section of the older part of the town was actually demolished for the scene showing the aftermath of the F4 tornado that devastates the town. Additional scenes and B-roll were filmed near Ponca City and Paul's Valley, among several other smaller farm towns across the state. 
However, due to changing seasons that massively transformed the look of Oklahoma's topography, filming was then moved to Iowa. The climactic scene with the F5 tornado was almost entirely shot around Eldora, Iowa, with the cornfield the characters run through located near Ames, Iowa. Actually, talking of the F4 and the F5, let's discuss tornado classification while we're here. A good tangent to go off. The Fujita scale, F. F0, less than 73 miles an hour, light damage. F1, 73 to 112 mile an hour winds, moderate damage. F2, 113 miles an hour to 157, considerable damage. F3, 158 to 206 miles an hour, severe damage. F4, and devastating damage with 207 to 260 miles per hour. That's pretty windy. And then there's the incredible, which actually does give incredible damage. F5, at 261 to 318 miles per hour. The Fujita scale, or actually the Fujita Pearson scale for its full name, the FPP scale. It's a scale for rating tornado intensity, as I've said. It's based primarily on the damage tornadoes inflict on human-built structures and vegetation. The official Fujita scale category is determined by meteorologists and engineers after a ground or aerial damage survey, or both. And depending upon the circumstances, ground swirl patterns, cycloidal marks, oh that's a good word, cycloidal, also weather radar, witness testimonies, media reports and damage imagery as well as photogrammetry or videogrammetry if motion picture recording is available. Also some good words there. The Fujita scale was actually replaced by the Enhanced Fujita scale, the EF scale, in the United States in February 2007. The original scale as derived by Fujita was the theoretical 13 scale level, going from F0 to F12, and it was designed to smoothly connect the Beaufort scale for wind measurement and the Mach number for the speed of sound together. F1 corresponds to the 12th level of the Beaufort scale, and F12 corresponds to the Mach number 1.0, the speed of sound. F0 was placed at a position specifically no damage, in analogy to how Beaufort's 0th level specifies little to no wind. From these wind speed numbers, qualitative descriptions of damage were made for each category of the Fujita scale that I mentioned earlier. At the time Fujita derived the scale though, little information was available on damage caused by wind, so the original scale presented little more than educated guesses at wind speed ranges for specific tiers of damage. Fujita intended that only F0 to F5 to be used in practice, as this covered all possible levels of damage to frame homes, as well as the expected estimate bounds of wind speeds. He did, however, add a description for F6, which he called an inconceivable tornado to allow for wind speeds exceeding F5 and possible advancements in damage analysis that might show it, based on the aerial photographs of the damage it caused. Vegeta assigned the strongest tornado of the 1974 super outbreak which affected Xenia, Ohio, a preliminary rating of F6 intensity. Wow, that's really, really fast. Anyway, enough of the science. Some of the more iconic scenes of the lifelike tornadoes in Twister included a plethora of falling debris into the path of the main protagonists. In the theatrical trailer for the movie, a destructive tornado scene complete with disintegrating barn, a flying tractor and a tyre smashing into a vehicle windscreen through which all this insane action is being viewed by the audience. It has become one of cinema's classic money shots, a wow moment and all the more incredible for the fact that it does not actually appear in the final film. The chaos and destruction of that scene was orchestrated by Industrial Light and Magic ILM which went on to also deliver some of the most technically advanced and convincing tornado, environment and destruction effects for the full feature. And also, a flying cow.
get drunkards here. We got no path. <laughs> that really is a classic line from Helen Hunt's character, Dr. Joe Harding. We have cows. As the cow flies by in the storm, and another cow. To which Bill Harding, played by the late, great, and highly underrated in my view, Bill Paxton, he says, actually, I think it was the same one. However, when I investigated and scientifically decided whether or not a twister could make a cow fly, well, with the wind blowing head-on at a constant speed, the cow produced 464 pounds of drag, this impressive amount of force could cause the cow to lose its balance, but is not enough to produce the dramatic flying CGI cow of Twister Firm. And before you ask if it was an African or European cow, this isn't the Holy Grail, and I'm not the Messiah. I'm just a very naughty boy. Ooh, Monty Python. Now there's a subject to cover at some point. It is I, Arthur, son of Uther Pendragon from the castle of Camelot, king of the Britons, defeater of the Saxons, sovereign of all England. Pull the other one. I am, and this is my trusty servant Patsy. We have ridden the length and breadth of the land in search of knights who will join me in my court at Camelot. I must speak with your lord and master. What, ridden on a horse? Yes. You're using coconuts. What? You've got two empty halves of coconut and you're banging them together. So? We have ridden since the snows of winter covered this land. Through the kingdom of Mercia, through... Where'd you get the coconuts? We found them. Found them? In Mercia, the coconut's tropical. What do you mean? Well, this is a temperate zone. The swallow may fly south with the sun, or the house martin or the plover may seek warmer climes in winter. Yet these are not strangers to our land. Are you suggesting coconuts migrate? Not at all. They could be carried. What? A swallow carrying a coconut? It could grip it by the husk. It's not a question of where he grips it. It's a simple question of weight ratios. A five-ounce bird could not carry a one-pound coconut. Well, it doesn't matter. Will you go and tell your master that Arthur from the court of Camelot is here? Listen, in order to maintain airspeed velocity, a swallow needs to beat its wings 43 times every second, right? Please! Am I right? I'm not interested. It could be carried by an African swallow. Oh, yeah, an African swallow may be, but not a European swallow, that's my point. Oh, yeah, I agree with that. Will you ask your master if he wants to join my court at Camelot? But then, of course, uh, African swallows are non-migratory. Oh, yeah. So they couldn't bring a coconut back anyway. Wait a minute. Supposing two swallows carried it together? No, they don't have it on a line. Well, simple. They just use a strand of creeper. What? Held under the dorsal guided feathers? Why not? And after that complete tangent, I'm sorry, I really couldn't resist putting that in there. One of my favourite scenes. Let's get on with the disaster movie, shall we? Actually, talking about the cow immediately reminds me of a sadly demised attraction at Universal Studios in Orlando, Florida. Twister Ride It Out was an indoor special effects attraction based on the movie Twister, and it was located in the New York-themed area. It replaced Ghostbusters Spooktacular and opened to the public on May the 4th, 1998. 
Hosts Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt, stars from the movie, were featured in recorded footage and audio narrations throughout the attraction. Guests experienced a lifelike encounter with a simulated tornado in the main show area, which included water, fire, and the movement of objects across the stage, among other audio and visual effects. I've been in this attraction many times, it was superb. The attraction really captured the essence of the movie, with the pre-show taking you through a model of Aunt Meg's damaged house after the twister. As guests walked into the kitchen, televisions are seen impaled into the wall, as if by tremendous force. Paxton and Hunt appear on the televisions and talk about the extreme experiences filming Twister, such as enduring the blasts of jet engines, having bits of chopped ice shot at them to simulate hail, and even having a gas tanker dropped in front of them and exploding. They also mentioned that during filming, actual tornadoes started touching down south of the locations they were filming in. Paxton in particular claims that the role leaves one in fear and awe of tornadoes and the terrible power they can unleash. The moment they finish speaking though, a thunder sound effect is heard as the television starts to static and tornado warning sirens begin to blare. The doors to the main show open and staff members with flashing red emergency glow sticks lead guests into the room for the main show. Inside the main showroom, a message is playing telling guests to get out of the house as television screens show the Channel 5 news report with a weather anchor issuing a tornado warning. Guests are finally led onto a set resembling the Galaxy Drive-In theatre scene and standing on a platform just outside the auto repair shop. They line up in three separate rows on a tiered observation platform under a corrugated metal roof. It did look very rickety. And this was overlooking a real soundstage outdoor scene featuring a view of the rural Galaxy Drive-In Theatre and the Rocket Hamburgers Diner. It's set at dusk as dark clouds roll overhead. Suddenly, a tree gets struck by lightning. Scenes from the people under the stairs appear on the movie screen. Sirens sound briefly and winds in the room get stronger as well as rain falling from the sky. A small flashlight can be seen inside the Rocket Hamburgers a couple of feet away as well as voices of family within the restaurant screaming to get inside, along with a dog barking. A projected tornado drops from the sky in the background. As it fully forms getting closer, the tornado turns and destroys the drive-in theatre. Then another tornado would appear on stage five stories tall and 12 feet wide. The glass of the Rockets hamburger's window shatters, and as the sound effect is heard, water spits behind the guests. Dorothy, the tornado tracking equipment, flies by as lightning flashes. The Galaxy Drive-In signs rips away and crashes inside Eric's garage. After that happens, a cow flies by the guests, which is an homage to the scene in the film. The roof of the observation platform where you are stood also threatens to tear off, being pulled upwards. A Dodge Ram truck parked in front of the garage slides towards a couple of gas trucks with the force of the tornado pulling it. The truck hits one of the gas tanks and gasoline liquid drains. Sparks are caused by the impact and fire forms up reaching the tornado, which causes a fireball three stories high to erupt. The twister dies out and the roof falls down above the guests. As this happens, the floor gives a sudden drop, giving guests a final scare. Bill Paxton thanks everybody for surviving the twister, directs them to the exit and to move to the left through the Aftermath gift shop. As the guests leave, projections of the family inside the restaurant can be seen peering out with a flashlight at the destruction outside. Declining popularity led to the attraction's permanent closure on November the 1st, 2015. It really was a great attraction and very representative of the movies of Universal. It was replaced by Race Through New York, starring Jimmy Fallon, and that opened in its place in 2017. I'm actually a fan of the Jimmy Fallon show, The Tonight Show, and the ride is actually great fun. Yes, I was actually there a few weeks ago, complete with hashtag the panda. Okay, enough theme parks and pandas. Where next? Oh yes, how did John Lennon find America again? Tell me, uh, how did you find America? So I left to Greenland. Has success changed your life? Yes. 
I'd like to keep Britain tidy. Are you a mod or a rocker? Um, no, I'm a mocker. <laughs> yes, Greenland. This is, in my view, a modern gem. And nicely hidden away on Amazon Prime, I believe. A relatively small budget of $35 million, which for a disaster movie is quite small, but this is a great watch. Greenland is a 2020 American disaster thriller film, directed by Rick Roman War and written by Chris Sparling. The film stars Gerard Butler, who also produced it, Morena Baccarin, Roger Dale Floyd, Scott Glenn, David Denman, and Hope Davis and it follows a family who must fight for survival as a planet-destroying comet races to Earth. Originally scheduled to be theatrically released in the United States, Greenland was delayed several times due to the COVID-19 pandemic. The film was released domestically by STX Entertainment through Video On Demand on December the 18th, 2020, and then played on HBO Max and Amazon Prime. It was still released theatrically in other territories, beginning with Belgium on July the 29th, 2020. The film received generally positive reviews from critics, and did gross $52 million worldwide. It's the kind of movie though that has you sitting on the edge of your seat throughout. Gerard Butler plays a determined, warm and loving family man who goes through terrible experiences to try and bring his wife and son back together with him to escape to Greenland, one of the few places on the planet that will be safe after the catastrophic comet strikes Earth. The movie actually showcases how humans might act towards each other in this type of global disaster, some horrible and others compassionate. You do get a strong feeling of mostly every man for himself in this one. His wife really has you feeling the intense fear of losing her son to kidnapping strangers. I was glad to see the grandfather played by Scott Glenn with strength and humanity, not some helpless zoned out senior. If you are looking for great entertainment mixed with philosophy and the sheer resilience of the human race, this is for you. Unlike its counterpart films such as Deep Impact, 2012 or The Day After Tomorrow, all of which I'll come to, this film has a way slower pace and instead of giving you an overload of destruction after destruction scenes, this movie really focuses on the family dynamics and how different people in society will react in the situation. This is definitely one of the better modern era disaster movies, and it is worth your time to watch. Personally, before I saw it, my expectation was very low. I was thinking, this is going to be another Geostorm 2 or some similar bad disaster movie, but I was very wrong, and the film exceeded my expectation by quite a lot. I will talk about the worst disaster movies later. This is definitely another great Sunday afternoon watch, Get the popcorn and snacks ready and settle in for an emotional ride. I always seem to think of disaster movies in that way, the Sunday matinee category. I don't know why, it just always seems to sit there for me. Anyway, that's quite a short synopsis of Greenland, but let's move on. Time to leave the end of the world behind and head back to the turn of the 20th century and to a cold April night in the icy North Atlantic Ocean. We're going aboard the unsinkable British passenger liner operated by the White Star Line that sank in the North Atlantic Ocean on the 15th of April 1912 after striking an iceberg during her maiden voyage from Southampton to New York City. Of the estimated 2,224 passengers and crew aboard, more than 1,500 died, making the sinking at the time one of the deadliest of a single ship and the deadliest peacetime sinking of a superliner or cruise ship to date. With much public attention in the aftermath, this disaster has since been the material of many artistic works, and a founding material of the disaster film genre. There have been at least eight movies I can think of to do with this subject, but we will focus on the behemoth of them all. Yes, it's time to get to the bow of the ship to go flying, be on top of the world, and to draw me like one of your French girls. It's Titanic. Jack, I want you to draw me like one of your French girls. Wearing this. Wearing only this. Yes, 
Iceberg, right ahead! Thank you. Iceberg, right ahead! On the starboard! starboard! Oh yes, I agree with that. We had way too much of that song back in 1997. 1997, wow. Now Titanic is one of the most successful and iconic disaster movies ever produced. It won 11 Oscars, including Best Picture, and is still one of the highest grossing movies of all time. Though you might think you know this Hollywood classic backwards and forwards, we've all seen it so many times I'm sure. Rather than repeat what you already probably know, here are a few facts that even the most die-hard fans probably don't even know about this nautical blockbuster. Let's start with a comment from Neil deGrasse Tyson. He prompted James Cameron to change an important scene in the movie after it was released. He told Cameron that Rose would not be able to see stars. James Cameron actually changed a scene in Titanic. After receiving an email from the astrophysicist, Tyson informed the director that the star field that Rose sees as she gazes up at the sky while floating on the door isn't actually the one she would have seen in real life and at that location and at that precise time. So in response, and ever the stickler for accuracy, James Cameron reshot the scene for the 3D release of the film in 2012. I do like that. It's a bit OCD, but I can approve of that. Also, another fact, the elderly couple filmed laying in bed together as the Titanic sinks are actually based on a real couple. These characters were based on actual people. The two are based on the Strauss couple. Isidore Strauss once co-owned the department store chain Macy's, and he and his wife Ida were on the real Titanic. Sadly, they both met their demise together during the disaster. The Strausses were portrayed by Lou Poulter and Elsa Raven in a scene where an unnamed older couple clutch each other in bed as the vessel sinks. Another fact, the nude sketch of Rose wearing the heart of the ocean was actually done by the film's director, James Cameron. The original drawing was also auctioned. The iconic drawing that DiCaprio's character produces of a naked Kate Winslet wearing only the heart of the ocean necklace was actually sketched by him. The original prop sketch was sold at auction in 2011. The highest bid revealed to be $16,000. Oof, paint me like one of your French girls, Jack. I must stop saying that, it's been too many times in this episode. Ooh la la. James Cameron also spent more time on the actual Titanic than any of the ship's original passengers. In one interview, he revealed that he was so dedicated to capturing the feel of the original vessel that he descended to the bottom of the ocean multiple times, and he would study the sunken wreck of the Titanic. As a result, he actually spent more time on the ship than any of the actual passengers. Talking of time, the final cut of Titanic is 195 minutes long. That means the production costs for the film equal just over $1 million for each minute of on-screen action. Fox Studio executives and Cameron reportedly fought over the film's long-running time and bloated budget of $200 million. As for the ship itself, most of the ship's decor was historically accurate. Titanic researchers from the White Star Line, the company that designed and decorated the real Titanic, they were on hand to direct production of most of the decor of the film's ship. Cameron insisted on using prop elements such as real wallpaper, actual crystal chandeliers, and having even small and unseen items stamped with the White Star Line's logo. 
Even the food was accurate. Actual, and I should stop using the word actual and actually, but actual factual beluga caviar was used in the film's first class dining room scenes. No expense was spared to make the first class dining room scenes as authentic as possible. According to a Vanity Fair interview with one of Leonardo DiCaprio's body doubles for the movie, the beluga caviar served to the actors was a pricey seafood treat that cost between $3,200 and $4,500 per pound. Upon tasting the delicacy, actor Jonathan Hyde reportedly made an acting decision on the spot that his character, J. Bruce Ismere, the managing director of the White Star Line in Titanic, was indeed now a big eater. He obviously had a penchant for beluga caviar. Leonardo DiCaprio, he also frequently brought his pet lizard onto the set. Again, according to one of his body doubles, the famous actor was often seen around the film's set in the company of his pet lizard, Blizzard. Blizzard the Lizard. Now that really is actually probably one of the most useless facts I've ever said on this podcast. But probably a good one for pub quizzes, I'm sure. Another of Jack's parts, and one of the most iconic lines, was actually improvised on the spot. Leonardo DiCaprio actually ad-libbed the famous line, I'm King of the World, which Jack shouts as he stands at the head of the ship. Another fact, on one of the last days of shooting, somebody reportedly spiked the cast and crew's chowder with PCP, a drug known for its mind-altering effects. During the final few days of the film's shooting schedule in Nova Scotia, a big batch of clam chowder providing the cast and crew's lunch was reportedly spiked with PCP, also known as angel dust for those of you who've seen Trading Places. It was reported the drug caused more than 80 people to fall ill and experience hallucinations. Many were hospitalised, but no one suffered any long-term ill effects. When James Cameron realised what was happening, he reportedly forced himself to vomit. I'm sure he was pretty unhappy about that. Again, as part of James Cameron, the director's OCD, he supposedly gave 150 core extras names and backstories. In order to avoid having to rehire and retrain a rotating collection of extras throughout production, the film hired a group of 150 extras who were required to take a course in correct 1912 behaviours and mannerisms. These extras were all given names and backstories, despite the fact that most of them never even spoke and only appeared fleetingly on screen. Jack's character itself was actually based on the life of a famous author. Jack Dawson was partially inspired by the famous writer Jack London, who lived in the era of the Titanic and is still known for works such as The Call of the Wild and White Fang. Jack London spent part of his youth as a sailor and participated in the Klondike Gold Rush. And finally, and just for historical and scientific accuracy once again, based on my research, Jack could have fit on the door with Rose. But if the door was actually made from heavy wood, which it likely would have been in those times, it would have sunk anywhere. Let's move quickly on from Titanic. However, an honourable mention to the movie A Night to Remember. A Night to Remember is the 1958 British film based on the eponymous 1955 book by Walter Lord, so I won't bore you with all of those details. But A Night to Remember, among all of the Titanic movies, is highly regarded by Titanic historians and survivors for its accuracy, despite its modest production values compared to the 1997 Titanic. Okay, let's leave the icy waters of the North Atlantic far behind us and head to somewhere much, much warmer. In fact, as warm as an inferno. A towering inferno. Steve McQueen and Paul Newman race against time as one tiny spark becomes a night of blazing suspense. The towering inferno. It's out of control. It's coming your way. The Towering Inferno is best described as a full-on brawny blockbuster of a movie, by far the best of the mid-1970s wave of disaster movies. It's three hours long, I do like a good long movie. It cost around $13 million to make, which is quite a lot at the time, and it's an example of Hollywood's commercial movie making at its finest. 
It's also a movie to make me happy. I don't live in a high-rise, so... Oh, hang on. I do. Oh dear. Anyone who lives above the seventh floor should find it thought-provoking, though. The story itself involves a mythical 135-floor San Francisco skyscraper, which, through a combination of meticulously constructed models and convincing special effects photography, looks realistic even though we know it's not. The building has been designed by architect Paul Newman, constructed by builder William Holden, and sabotaged by the cost-cutting of his son-in-law, Richard Chamberlain. There are ominous omens right from the beginning. All the principals arrive at the building for a big dedication party in the top floor restaurant. But meanwhile a generator shorts out and a small fire begins in an equipment room. The building has a state-of-the-art central communications and security system, but half the equipment doesn't work. As one of the big shots tells Holden, I told you we shouldn't have held the party until the safeguards were installed. Famous last words from the man from Wyoming though. The original fire spreads, more electrical equipment malfunctions, gas leaks explode, and in no time the tower is a mass of flames. A towering inferno. Steve McQueen is the fire chief, calm, cool and courageous. Always the seas, even when he and a lot of his men are trapped above the blaze. However, he manages to move around pretty efficiently by escaping down an elevator shaft, only to be airlifted up to rescue the occupants of a stalled outside tourist elevator, and later to be dropped on the roof for some split-second heroics with Paul Newman. The details of the fire are convincing. The explosions, the wreckage, the bombed out inside fire escapes all look real. The towering inferno is, in fact, a bit of a masterpiece of stunt coordination and special effects. And there's never the phony feeling you get with Earthquake, shall we say, where you could actually see where the high-rise set stopped and the painted flats began. The producer, Owen Allen, from The Poseidon Adventure, also directed the action sequences and their gems of exposition. What often happens in these complicated action pictures is that we lose track of the various characters and their various hazards. Not this time. There are five main action threads. Paul Newman's successful journey up and down a blasted out stairwell to save a woman and two kids. The black tie crowd waiting to be rescued in the luxurious 135th floor restaurant. The maintenance of Breacher's Boy. The business of saving a dozen people trapped in the outside elevator. And the finale involving two million gallons of water. I don't want to give away too much though. All these threads are skillfully woven by Alan and his director, John Gwillermin, although they give us what's advertised as five great love stories, never allow the action to bog down too long for the various protestations of affection and last words. They are also mightily assisted by the fact that although the building loses its power and mighty explosions rip apart the whole floor, the telephone system never stops working. Very convenient. If McQueen below and Newman above hadn't been able to talk to each other, the story development would have run into some embarrassing problems. As it is, they develop a camaraderie under fire and at the end exchange some pointed comments on high-rises in general. We were lucky today, McQueen says. The body count was only 200. One of these days, 10,000 people are going to die in one of those fire traps. Yes, Steve McQueen was also from Wyoming. Whether high-rises are indeed fire traps is a debatable question. A more interesting question might involve the meaning of all these disaster movies. The Towering Inferno, Airport 1975, Earthquake, and many others of this period, including a sequel to The Poseidon Adventure. Was it that during hard times and uncertain world conditions, we turn to escapist entertainment? Perhaps when we fear for ourselves, we go to disaster movies to face and exercise our greater fears. Or perhaps a less philosophical and cynical view would be that Hollywood simply rediscovered a dependable old genre and reinvigorated it with millions of books and lots of big name stars. It was the same approach that would work in later years with horror, science fiction and other durable genres. Throw stars and money at them and they deliver. Enough philosophy and burning ambitions, haha, <laughs> all puns intended. Let's keep going. We haven't had a proper end of days themed movie yet. Well for me there's only one, and no it's not Simon Pegg's The World's End. I'm sorry. And surprisingly, you may think, I'm not really a fan of his movies. They're alright, but just average. Our next choice, however, 
does feature a vast array of Hollywood stars. A Harry Potter legend, Rihanna, Magic Mike, Ant-Man and even the Backstreet Boys. What could it be? Emma! Emma! Oh my god, you guys are alive! You're actually alive, thank god! I hid in a drainpipe for days, like three or four, I don't even know how many. And then I stopped hearing people and I started hearing growling noises. Out there in your travels, uh, did you see anything that you would describe as apocalyptic? I mean, no, uh, but no. Uh, I would say it's completely obvious what's what's going on here. I mean, it's a it's a zombie invasion. Whoa! 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 I got it, I got it. No, it's funny, it's funny. We were specifically talking about yeah. not raping. This is the end. Actually, no, this isn't the end. That was This Is The End. This is not the end, that was This Is The End. The end is later, not now. Anyway, This Is The End, a 2013 American apocalyptic comedy horror written, directed and produced by Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg. This was their directorial debuts. It's a feature-length film adaptation of the short film Jay and Seth vs. The Apocalypse from 2007, which was also written by Rogen and Goldberg, with the short's director, Jason Stone, serving as an executive producer. It stars James Franco, Jonah Hill, Rogan, Jay Baruchel, Danny McBride, Craig Robinson, Michael Cera and Emma Watson. The film centres on fictionalised versions of its cast in the wake of a global biblical apocalypse. Produced by Mandate Pictures and Rogan and Goldberg's Point Grey Pictures, This Is The End premiered at the Fox Village Theatre on June 3, 2013. It was released theatrically in the United States the next day by Columbia Pictures. The film was both a critical and commercial success receiving positive reviews from critics and grossing $126 million worldwide on a budget of around $32 million. The pre-apocalypse setup finds Baruchel visiting his best friend Rogan in Los Angeles. After an amusingly sped up montage of stoner humour, Rogan asks Baruchel to join him at their mutual colleague and friend, James Franco's house. Baruchel doesn't want to go because Jonah Hill will be there, but Rogan convinces him otherwise. Franco's oddly shaped house, where most of the film takes place, is an imaginative piece of set design, with its phallic sculptures, arty paintings, concrete floors, hidden closets and multiple windows. The house becomes a character of its own, eagerly anticipating each horrible visitor who stops by for mischief. The first of said visitors is one guy nobody invited, Danny McBride. McBride quickly establishes why he is left off the list by displaying the personality one would expect from the star of Eastbound and Down. Another good show actually if you get a chance to watch it. While Rogan and company take every opportunity to inject humour into their trials and tribulations, This Is The End plays the rapture itself rather straight. The first sequence of the apocalypse is actually very well done, with Rogan and Baruchel running directly into chaos. These scenes have a jittery, queasy panic as the director follows the action with steady camera work and editing. People die horrible deaths, Michael Cera's wage of sin as a particularly gruesome paycheck, and while James Franco's house makes for a comically rendered safe haven, the filmmakers assure us it is only temporary. Food and water become scarce and the attitudes inside the house become almost as hostile as the world outside its doors. This is the end finds a balanced tone most horror comedies fail to deliver. Gross out humour melts easily with gross out horror, sometimes at the same moment. 
the obvious nods to the exorcist and Rosemary's baby coexist with hilarious examination of the familiar dynamic of a group of friends. There's a leader, Rogan, a troublemaker, McBride, people who pretend to like one another but don't, Hill and Baruchel, the cool arty one, James Franco, and the all-around nice guy, Robinson. This is the end reminds us of our own circle of friends and the occasional drama that surrounds them. Regardless of the situation, those with a casual comfort around one another always fall back on group-defined roles, routines and conflicts. Oh, we're getting all philosophical again. But not even the end of days will stop Rogan's friends from ribbing him about the Green Hornet, or will it prevent Jonah Hill from taking shots about his post-Oscar nomination film choices, and nothing ends a grudge like good old-fashioned demonic possession, as they did with Superbad, which is a good movie as well. Rogan and Goldberg add a layer of emotional sweetness that sneaks up on you, diluting the raunchiness and giving the film a greater purpose than mere shock value. Even at the lowest moments of terror and hilarity, there's an undercurrent of hope and redemption for those who seek it. This is a refreshing change from the spate of recent comedies, where meanness alone passes for character development and humour. Still, be aware that this is a rather hard R-rated comedy. As you may have heard in the clip, from Emma Watson dropping the F-bomb. In addition to the fiery pits and the gore, the effects team produced demons both CGI and human-based. One is clearly a guy in a suit. Two very well-endowed iterations of Old Scratch, a destroyed Hollywood that Roland Emmerich would envy, and a final, blisteringly white final sequence I wouldn't dare spoil for you. I'll leave you to watch the movie to find that one out. This movie is funny, suspenseful, and ultimately jubilant. This is the end though, I imagine for some viewers it'll be the equivalent of an eyes wide open descent into hell, but for others it'll be perfect. There was talk of a sequel to the movie, but it was never produced. When Evan Goldberg was asked whether a sequel to the film was probable, he said, If you ask me, I'd say there's a pretty good chance of a sequel. If you ask Seth Rogen, he'd say no. Ultimately, Rogen said of the potential for a sequel, I don't think we'll make a sequel to This Is The End, but if we did it would be called, no, This Is The End. Hopefully they'll get round to it one day. I think that just about covers the rapture. Let's have a threat from outer space next. When it comes to Ellie's, oh sorry, extinction level events, there are two standout movies for me and both from the same year. I remember this time well. Same time, same subject, but very different approaches. I thought I'd give both equal billing though. In fact, no, 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 let's have them go toe to toe and you get out to see who is the best. The referee can pick the winner. That's me in case you were wondering, I am the referee. Okay, we recently had Godzilla vs King Kong. It's time for Deep Impact vs Armageddon. Let's get ready to rumble! were nothing the size of basketballs and Volkswagens. This new one you're tracking, how big? It's the size of Texas, Mr. President. It's what we call a global killer, the end of mankind. Half the world will be incinerated by the heat blast, and the rest will freeze to death in nuclear winter. Basically the worst parts of the Bible. To ensure the continuation of our way of life, we've been preparing a network of immense caves, and we can put a million people in them underground for two years. Yeah, one more thing. Um, none of them want to pay taxes again. 
ever. Deep Impact versus Armageddon, where to start? For more than 20 years now, people the world over have been viciously debating, I'm sure they have, about which 1998 summer blockbuster disaster movie is better. Is it Armageddon or is it Deep Impact? I'm sure friendships have been ruined, families have been ripped apart, just by not being able to agree on which of the two movies, roughly about the same thing, that were released three months apart from one another, is actually the better option. Well, it doesn't have to be this way any longer. We can be civil and mathematical about it all, and decide once and for all which movie about a comet with a collision course set for Earth is actually the best. By taking a look at the different aspects of each blockbuster, both good and bad, we can come up with an answer that is based on as much objectivity as you can when finding about your favourite and least favourite things. And also about these two ridiculously good movies. They're both excellent movies. So without wasting any more valuable time, let's decide once and for all which is the better movie. Is it Armageddon or is it Deep Impact? Let's start with Armageddon. Released on the Wednesday before the 4th of July weekend, Michael Bay's epic disaster film about a group of drillers who are sent into space in order to destroy an asteroid before it wipes out all life on Earth brought in $553 million at the global box office, with a star-studded cast that included the likes of Bruce Willis, Ben Affleck, the lovely Liv Tyler and Billy Bob Thornton, and an expansive ensemble cast of other Hollywood staples and newcomers. It's not hard to believe that Armageddon was the most financially successful movie of not just the summer, but the entire year. From the jump, the idea of NASA agreeing to send a group of oil drillers, albeit the best damn drillers you'll ever see, to space, to drill deep below the surface of an asteroid the size of Texas, and insert a nuclear bomb that they will then set off, it's one of the most ridiculous things anyone has ever heard of when a movie came out. Remember this was 1998, Roland Emmerich's Godzilla came out that year, and while the fish out of water concept of transplanting a dozen or so grunts from an offshore rig to the vacuum of space made for some funny moments, it just doesn't make a lot of sense, and it doesn't even touch on the scientific inaccuracies of the whole mess. So for that, it gets minus five points, as the plan would never work. Let's move on to the humour. Although the concept of forcing trained astronauts to stay back on Earth while a group of undertrained and ill-suited oilmen go up to save the day is a far stretch of epic proportions, the concept did lend itself to a great deal of humour, which happens to be the movie's strong point. The section of the movie that comes to mind is the whole training montage before Harry and the rest of the drillers can go into space, especially the bit where Harry Stamper, Bruce Willis, goes over a few of the not-so-reasonable requests made by the crew, which include gems like bringing back 8-track tapes, the identity of JFK's assassin, and not having to pay taxes again. Ever. And there's also the matter of staying at the White Horse. That's the White House. So for that, it gets plus 5 points. That's some of the best humour ever in a disaster movie. What next? The success of the plan. In case you forgot, or were distracted by all the special effects, more on that later, NASA's plan is to drill a hole in the centre of the asteroid, plant a nuclear bomb, and blow the sucker into two smaller pieces that would hypothetically miss the planet entirely. And the plan miraculously works, and all but a few members of the crew, Harry included, more on that later as well, make it back home safe and sound. The planet and billions of its inhabitants live to see another day, and the two small pieces of the asteroid pass by the Earth and back into the darkness of space. Actually, so for success of the plan, it gets plus three points. Despite the plan being laughable, it actually works. Okay, the next category, a parent's act of self-sacrifice. Going into the movie, there was no doubt that Harry Stamper wouldn't be coming back home to see his daughter Grace. Liv Tyler, but Michael Bay toyed with audience throughout the movie to try and make them believe that the absent father would complete his redemption story 
and see his child again. Especially when AJ Frost, Ben Affleck, draws the short straw when the bomb's remote trigger is damaged beyond repair. When the big switcheroo goes down and Harry forces AJ back into the ship and calls him the son he never had, you knew it was about to go down. And even though the shot of Grace crying against the monitor as her dad said goodbye was used in an Aerosmith video, yes that song, which was also continuously played, but was a good song, but it's a bit of a sappy, predictable mess. So for that, we all saw it coming, minus four points. The special effects, there's no doubt about it. Armageddon is a Michael Bay movie. If you've seen his movies, you know what they're all about. Perhaps even the most Michael Bay movie of all the director's movies from the 1990s. And although Bay's direction is questionable at times, he does know how to shoot explosive action sequences and give his movies a distinct look. Just watch the New York City meteor shower scene. Yes, the one with Eddie Griffin, Godzilla toys, and Mark Curry of Hanging with Mr. Cooper fame, and it's not hard to mistake for something you'd see in 2021, not just in 1998. And that's just the beginning. The rest of the movie features some of the most inventive and eye-catching special effects shots of that decade, and it really adds a level of gravitas to the whole feature. So for that, plus five points. They still hold up today. Great special effects. Okay, Deep Impact, your turn. Deep Impact, a little less than two months before Armageddon hit theatres. The Mimi later directed Deep Impact arrived in theatres on May the 8th, 1998. Although it's the lesser known of the two disaster films to come out that year, Deep Impact boasts an impressive cast of actors like Morgan Freeman, Robert Duvall, Tia Leone and Elijah Wood, and it brought in $349 million at the global box office. What this movie lacks in pizzazz that Michael Bay brought to his disaster movie three months later, Deep Impact makes up for with one of the most realistic plans of handling the hold, the world is probably going to get destroyed, premise. Let's start with Morgan Freeman as the president. If there's anything more calming than hearing Morgan Freeman's deep and soothing voice. Actually, there's not. Even when he's informing the American public that a comet large enough to wipe out all life is headed towards the planet, he keeps it cool. That's exactly what everyone got in Deep Impact, in which Freeman portrays United States President Tom Beck. Though he keeps his secrets and is prone to come off a little shady in a few parts of the movie, Freeman's character brings a level of the authority and calm that really sticks with you even when he's not on screen. And the way he handles the situation after all hope is lost, it's pretty remarkable. More about that in a moment. So for Morgan Freeman as President alone, plus five points. Now let's keep these like for like. So let's talk about the plan to destroy the comet. Like the other end of the world movie that came out in 1998, Deep Impact has one hell of a plan to wipe out the seven mile comet before it's too late. Blow it up with nuclear bombs. The initial plan, however, fails. And instead of destroying the comet, it breaks into two smaller pieces that are still on a collision course with the planet. Although the crew of the Messiah is able to break up one of the comets into small pieces on a suicide mission, the other comet still barrels down towards Earth, creating a tsunami that wipes out the eastern seaboard of the United States, killing many people in the process. Despite the crew's best efforts, many lives were lost, and entire cities were wiped off the map, so the plan partially fails and hundreds of thousands die. Minus five points, I'm afraid. Let's talk about the lottery system to save part of the human race. When the initial plan to destroy the comet fails, in spectacular fashion, President Beck announces to the world he and other world leaders have been building large underground shelters, with America's being located in Missouri. Beck then announces a lottery to select 800,000 American citizens under the age of 50, I only just qualify, to enter the shelter along with 200,000 other people who were pre-selected for various reasons. 
As dark and morbid as it may sound to have a lottery of a fraction of the country's population, it does seem like something you would see happening in today's world if something like this went down, especially when you realise that 200,000 of the country's richest and most notable figures would find a way to get in before everyone else. It's grim, but you could see it happening, so for honest truth, plus 5 points. Parents and self-sacrifice again? If there wasn't enough similarities between these two movies, here's another one. Parents sacrifice themselves in order for their children to live on without them. Unlike Armageddon, which only saw one parent sacrifice themselves for others, Deep Impact has more than you can count. For the sake of brevity, we'll focus on Sarah Hotchner's, Lely Sobieski's parents, who tell Sarah and her boyfriend, Leo Biderman, Elijah Wood, who discovered the comet, to not only save themselves, but to take Sarah's baby brother to the high ground of the Appalachian Mountains. So the heartbreaking decision for the parent of a newborn is to give their baby away. It's quite a heartbreaking watch, actually, the first time. It's, there was dust in my eye at the time, I think, when it happened. But for this, and the handing off of the baby, plus four points. So special effects? Does it all come down to this? If one thing aged well with Armageddon, it hasn't aged well with Deep Impact. It's the special effects. They look more like a made-for-television movie these days when compared to Armageddon. The Comet Trail looks okay when Leo, Sarah and her brother are racing to safety, but that tsunami that sweeps across the Atlantic coast looks more than a little rough after all these years. It looked good at the time, I agree, but now it doesn't really hold up. And besides the dated special effects, the general look of the movie is rather flat and lacks any depth or creative angles outside of the impressive space scenes. So for that, the effects didn't age well. Minus three points, unfortunately. Alright, that's the end of the debate. It was vicious and heated, with all the 14 people inside my head arguing about it, but I've now decided, taking my points from previously, and giving each movie a one point for each thing that was good, and taking away a point for everything that wasn't, each movie could earn a maximum of five points. Here's how they did. Drumroll, please. Armageddon, four points. Armageddon, quatre points. Deep Impact, six points, and it looks like we have a winner in this fight to destroy the world with comments. Yes, after all of this, Deep Impact is the winner. Even if it had one of the most absurd endings, when Jenny Lerner and her estranged father, Jason Lerner, have a nauseatingly sappy final few words before being carried away by a giant wave, it's still a great movie. But as I said earlier, these are both still great 90s movies, and I can still watch either of these from time to time. And I guess, ultimately, and if you take a more cynical point of view, from the box office perspective, Armageddon definitely wins that, because it made more money. So I guess, that also makes Armageddon the winner. We have a draw. That's near enough. The argument's not settled, really. Go watch them both. Okay, enough about big space rocks. Let's change disaster mode to another movie, and also one of my favourite theme park attractions. Up there also with the sadly demised Jaws ride. Yes, it's the one, the only, Earthquake. I have to go to Oregon this summer. All summer on a hydroelectric project. Come up there. They indicate another pre-shock, probably before noon today. And if it happens? Then the big one follows in 48 hours. If this dam busts, there won't be nothing between here and Wilshire Boulevard left to burn! <laughs> 1974 saw Earthquake. 
but it was mostly structured like an average disaster film of the 70s. Several interlocking characters are introduced early, and unlike the recent entries of the genre, such as San Andreas in 2015, and those by Roland Emmerich, their attitude towards the catastrophe in hand was dead serious, leaving very little room for humour. Earthquake deals with the world-class engineer Stuart Graff, played by Charlton Heston, whose marriage to Remy, Eva Gardner, is clearly on the outs so much that it is impossible to imagine they could have ever been even remotely happy together. Remy is the daughter of Stuart's boss Royce, played by Bonanza patriarch Lorne Green. With just a few hours before catastrophe strikes, Stuart starts dating widowed Denise, played by Genevieve Bujold. These are the basic dynamics of a cinematic love triangle that makes the one in Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor 2001 feel like one in Michael Curtiz's Casablanca by comparison. I don't believe that the general outline of Earthquake is by any means terrible. Even if it's not particularly original for an entry that debuted right in the middle of the 1970s disaster movie careers, which itself is like a shorter lived version of today's comic book epidemic. That's not a bad epidemic, I might add. I don't mind that, but there are an awful lot of comic book movies. The characters are first introduced, followed by a small tremor that detonates the usual warnings that go unanswered and the big earthquake destroys the city in spectacular fashion. The Heston-George Kennedy duo then proceeds to rescue several extras in heroic fashion, while the bursting of a dam provides the opportunity for a spectacular, watery escape. Actually reminiscent of the one in the Poseidon Adventure in 1972, and even that in 78 Superman, which was also penned by the same screenwriter, Mario Puzo. All that's missing from the typical entry of this genre are the usual warnings against greed as the source of man's doom, and a character spontaneously bursting into song. I suppose the filmmakers just couldn't find the right spot. On the plus side, and I sound negative about the movie, this is why I bring it up in a possible top 10. I love a good B-movie, and this movie has some terrific special effects even if they've dated so badly, especially those involving the progressive destruction of Los Angeles in miniature, as seen from Royce's office, as well as some falling vehicles from a collapsing freeway. Actually, there's a hint there. If you're ever driving during an earthquake, it may not be a bad idea to hit the brakes. These types of effects have more weight and end up being more convincing than most of those made up with CGI in some bad movies these days. I think I've spoken about this before, about the love of physical effects. Sometimes it works much better than CGI. The film's technicians came up with some of the most incredible looking models, on par with those from the ship in the Poseidon Adventure and the skyscraper from the Towering Inferno. But the first of Earthquake's main faults is that it also happens to include some really shabby manual effects, particularly those that involved real size elements. Not elephants, elements. If there is one thing I've never seen in a real earthquake, and I've been in a few, it's flying columns, beams, and signs falling in the middle of the street. By relying so heavily on the sense around system during the event, in many instances the filmmakers forgot to include the necessary sound effects to go along with their collapse or their rupture, making it hard to avoid the fact that they were all mostly made out of styrofoam. There's also the hilarious shot of the woman with shards of glass stuck in her face, even before a glass pane falls onto her head. Look closely, it does happen. Earthquake includes some other laughable sequences, such as the one involving a cook falling alongside a stove at the precise moment when a giant boiling pot falls and empties all of its contents on top of him. It just looks like something out of what's those world's dumbest videos TV shows. Even worse is the video of the guy looking for gas leaks with a cigarette in his mouth. Smokers have routinely been treated rather harshly in movies, I must admit. Think of the man who loses his arm to the shark in Deep Blue Sea, but even as a warning on how not to encounter this type of situation, the image here is beyond stupid. Another of the film's mistakes was including too many scenes and characters that just don't belong. Did a disaster movie really need a sequence involving a motorcycle stunt show, or a car chase that includes the requisite baby carriage, and Zaza Gabor's prized gardens? Did it really need a bar fight with drunks smashing into 
into racks full of pool sticks? And what exactly could have been the point of filling any disaster entry with such an assortment of bizarre characters? Like the Marjo Gartner sex deviant who looks like he came right out of the Pulp Fiction sadomasochistic basement. Also hard to explain are the presence of Gartner and Ava Gardner's strange wigs and Gartner and Victoria Principal's matching perms. I suppose it's no mystery that anything and everything from the 70s has dated horribly. Think of Charlton Heston's portable car form and his ever moving toupee for example. But the examples in Earthquake seem to have been done fully on purpose. Then there's Walter Matthau's prolonged drunk cameo which seems to rely on the old funny but repetitive trick. In other words he just gets more annoying by the minute. As I said this may sound like I'm hating on the movie but no this is what makes it such a good watch and it's sometimes it's just a comical watch. It's of the time and genre and doesn't date well but it's a firm document of movie making at the time and that's what I love about it and it makes it another great Sunday afternoon watch with the mandatory popcorn snacks and a beer or two. In fact after all of these years it's hard for me to say if Earthquake is either a guilty pleasure or a movie so bad that it's good. Perhaps the line between both attributes is too thin and maybe they are just one and the same but I used to always love the attraction at Universal Studios. As soon as I had been on that I would want to watch the movie again and vice versa. Anyway enough analysis it's time to visit the future. It's time to go to the day after tomorrow. We found something extraordinary. Extraordinary and disturbing that is. You recall what you said about how polar melting might disrupt the North Atlantic current? Yes. Well, I think it's happening. What can we do? Save as many as you can. Day After Tomorrow by Roland Emmerich and even his harshest critics would concede he has a flair for destruction. Independence Day and to, a lesser, and to a lesser extent his whole canon from Stargate through to the Patriot is an expert exposition of the slow build, the big bang theory of devastation. Emmerich can be relied upon to provide the inevitable cataclysm, steadily cranking up the tension as dead meat mortals struggle to understand forces that the audience already knows will consume them. The money shot after all is always in the trailer. The problem with a lot of Emmerich's movies, such as Godzilla, is that when the storm finally passes and the fight back begins he appears to lose interest and the second half of many of his movies, which should theoretically contain all surprise, issue none. With The Day After Tomorrow Emmerich does not really correct this imbalance. The movie clearly climaxes with the New York tidal wave familiar from the trailers but he does find a genre which provides an even better showcase for destruction and sustains his interest until a bittersweet end. He is the modern master of the disaster movie. The Day After Tomorrow cleaves much closer in structure and spirit to the Poseidon Adventure, apparently Emmerich's personal favourite disaster movie. It is in effect the Poseidon planet and once disaster strikes with an incalculable cost to off-screen human life, the raggedy bunch of comically mixed survivors must simply hold out long enough for the rescue helicopters to arrive. There are three truly unmissable sequences though, the tornadoes tearing through LA, the drowning of New York and the final super freeze. These all set a benchmark for the summer of special effects and created a template for the onslaught of CGI driven disaster movies that followed. The CGI may not always be entirely photorealistic but these sequences have sweep and power and in places an almost eerie beauty and it is here that the director finds himself on surer ground, finding space amid the mayhem for the deft touches and cruel wit so often lacking from the dialogue scenes. Everybody is good at one thing this year, for Roland Emmerich it's destruction. Talking of another Emmerich movie, and we should include it at this point I guess, set in the future at the time, 
but now firmly in our past. It's another Roland Emmerich offering. Don't thank the Phoenicians, blame the Mayans. It's the apocalyptic tale that is 2012. I'm not quite sure why I chose that clip, but it just seemed appropriate. But as with any Emmerich movie, you know what to expect, and 2012 does not disappoint. This work employed a monstrous amount of CGI and visual effects to complete the disaster scenes. It was accompanied by very cliche acting scenes and a large amount of drama that catered to a very unlikely plot. The odds of the protagonists making it out of every situation with as little casualties as they had is mind-boggling really. You always need a little bit of collateral damage along the way. The way that they portray the earthquake reactions is very alarming because the frequency of California's earthquakes and their small seismic tremors leading to the world-ending disaster is very confusing and misleading in the way that didn't portray the public outcry in a larger magnitude. The signs that the Earth was undergoing major environmental changes were there for everyone in California to see before the leading scientists had a chance to convince the president. The way that the ships were kept under such secrecy may seem unbelievable now, but this movie was filmed in 2009, so they probably did not take into account how intrusive and widespread the internet is now. This movie just in general has a lot of inconsistencies and probably contributed to a lot of the hype around the meteor's portrayal and public opinion surrounding the Mayan calendar and their culture. There was a lot of drama throughout the film due to many family dynamics that helped add to the excitement of the disaster footage. For these disasters to seem feasible, a lot would have to go wrong with our environment very quickly to capture the public's opinion and bring attention to the possible explanations like the sun's neutrino Missions. Overall though, this was a long and mostly entertaining movie. A lot of special effects and crazy scenes for a real life doomsday. I always enjoy it, it's just the general mayhem and the disaster that Roland Emmerich brings. Let's move on though, that's enough of 2012, just a little bit about that. But I think, time for one last movie, before we get into the rankings of my top 10. And this is one I'm sure has flown under many of your radars, definitely. It's from China. Yes, it's subtitled, but it's an epic of global proportions. It's the Wandering Earth, or is that Lulang Didijo? The Wandering Earth. I've never been one to shy away from world cinema. This is a good find. 2019 it was made. It's a science fiction adventure starring a talented ensemble of Mandarin-speaking actors trying to stop the Earth from crashing into Jupiter. The Wandering Earth was one of 2019's Chinese New Year hits. It grossed $300 million in China alone, and that was just in its opening week. It's actually a hopeful sign that we'll see more entertainment as assured as this coming out of China and the rest of Asia. The setup might seem familiar at first. Two teams of astronauts fight to save the Earth years after its leaders transformed it into a planet-sized spaceship to escape the destruction by an overactive sun. This movie does nothing in halves. The first team is a two-man skeleton crew, the square-jawed Pei Kuang Lu, Jing Wu, and his Russian cosmonaut buddy Makarov, Arkady Sharagradsky, 
I hope I got that right. The other is a small exploratory group, led by Pei Kuang's feisty 20-something son, Kui Lu, played by Chuzhou Ku, and his upbeat partner, Duo Duo Han, played by Jin Mai Zhao. These factions respectively spent most of their time battling Moss, an unhelpful computer in a remote space station, and exploring an ice-covered Earth in stolen all-terrain vehicles, some of which bring to mind Total Recall, specifically the tank-sized drill cars. But while director Frank Guo and his writing team blend Shizan Lu's source novel with elements from American-made sci-fi disaster films, including Armageddon, The Day After Tomorrow, and Sunshine. Sunshine I didn't mention, actually. They synthesise them in a visually dynamic, emotionally engaging way that sets the project apart from its Western cousins, and it marks it as a great and uniquely Chinese science fiction film. For one thing, rather than build the tale around a lone hero ringed by supporting players, The Wandering Earth distributes bravery generously amid an ensemble that includes an action hero, Wu, rising stars Ku and Zhao, and comedy institution Mantan Ang, who plays a grey-bearded spaceman named Zhang Ha. The script, credited to a team of six, never valorises a singular chest-puffing hero, nor does it scapegoat a moustache-twirling antagonist, not even Moss the Sentient, see HAL 9000-style computer program in the space station. The teamwork theme is cross-generational too. Both Pei Kuang and Ang, formerly the straight man to film superstar Stephen Chow, are treated with reverence because they're older, and are therefore presumed to have more experience and stronger moral fibre. The veterans work well with the film's younger astronauts, whose optimism makes them as brazen as they are idealistic. This apolitical blockbuster about a post-climate change disaster extends its brief into teamwork to the rest of the international community. The movie is filmed with narrative diversions that reassure viewers that no single country's leader are smarter, more responsible, or more capable than the rest, except of course for the Chinese. And second, The Wandering Earth looks better than most American special effects spectaculars because it gives you breathing space to admire landscape shots of a dystopian Earth that suggests old-fashioned matte paint on steroids. Although Guo and his team realised their expensive-looking vision with the help of a handful of visual effects studios, including the Weta Workshop, they have somehow blended their many influences in bold, stylish ways that only Hollywood filmmakers like James Cameron and Steven Spielberg have previously managed. Thirdly, the film's creators breathe new life into hackneyed tropes. Guo and his team take a little extra time to show off the laser beams, steering wheels and hydraulic joints on their space cars and on their exoskeleton suits, and this makes the gear seem unique. And the storytelling goes extra miles to show up viewers the emotional stress and natural obstacles that the characters must overcome while solving scientifically credible dilemmas, all vetted by the Chinese Academy of Science, of course. The movie may not be the next 2001 A Space Odyssey, but it's everything 2010, the year we make contact, should have been and I like those movies a lot, this is better. I actually only watched this movie a week ago, and a week after seeing The Wandering Earth, I'm still marvelling at how good it is. I can't think of another recent computer graphics-driven blockbuster that left me feeling this giddy because of its creator's can-do spirit and consummate attention to detail. There's much more explanation in the storytelling. The future is here, and it is nerve-wracking, it's gorgeous, and it's Chinese. Go watch The Wandering Earth. Definitely Podcast 42 endorsed. Okay. Before I go into the rankings, my top 10, how about some honourable mentions? And some I could easily have included in more detail, if not for the time constraints of what would have been probably a 24-hour episode. I'm sure a couple of hours in already. Honourable mentions. These are all worthy of your time for sure. Melancholia. So Melancholia is emphatically not what you would call a feel-good movie. And yet it nonetheless leaves you with a glow of aesthetic satisfaction. Total obliteration happens on an intimate scale, and the all-encompassing metaphysical nature of the drama leaves room for gentleness as well as operatic cruelty, as the lives of sisters Justin and Claire get entangled when they discover the Earth is about to collide with an enormous planet called Melancholia. I'm keeping these quick, don't worry. Another one, Castaway. 
technically a disaster movie. Tom Hanks' Desert Island masterpiece is a disaster movie. I guess it deserves a mention, if only for Wilson. The Impossible. This is one I toyed with adding to the top 10 and it only narrowly missed out. It's about the couple Maria Henry and their three kids who decide to spend Christmas in Thailand, but their luxurious holiday turns into a nightmare when a tsunami swells up unannounced, thereby separating the family. Set in the aftermath of the deadly tsunami that struck the Indian Ocean in 2004, I remember this well, the movie is based on the true story of a Spanish family vacationing in Thailand when it struck. They were miraculously reunited after being separated. Well worth a watch. Another movie that I could easily have added to the list, Deepwater Horizon. This movie starring Mark Wahlberg. It's definitely a bit too close to home though for me, but portrays the Deepwater Horizon in stark realism. The movie draws heavily from a thoroughly researched 2010 New York Times article documenting the incident. Let's keep moving. Another one for worthy mention, San Francisco. The 1936 musical drama disaster film. Yes, I did just say musical drama disaster film. Directed by Woody Van Dyke, based on the April 18th, 1906 San Francisco earthquake. The film stars none other than Clark Gable. Jeanette MacDonald and Spencer Tracy, the very popular singing of MacDonald helped make this film a major hit, coming on the heels of her other 1936 blockbuster, Rosemary. Famous silent film directors D.W. Griffith and Eric von Stroheim worked on the film without credit. Griffith directed some of the mob scenes, while von Stroheim contributed to the screenplay. Check this out, if you can find it, it's worth a look. Another honourable mention, Daylight, the Sylvester Stallone, standard 90s fair, trying to escape the New Jersey Tunnel, another one, Outbreak. This definitely tops the epidemics and pandemics category, I think. I really should have said a bit more about that. But Outbreak, the 1995 American medical disaster movie, directed by Wolfgang Peterson and based on Richard Preston's 1994 non-fiction book, The Hot Zone. The film stars Dustin Hoffman, René Russo, Morgan Freeman, again, and Donald Sutherland and co-stars Cuba Gooding Jr, Kevin Spacey and Patrick Dempsey. The film focuses on an outbreak of a fictional Ebola virus, like Motaba virus, in Zaire and later in a small town in California. It is primarily set in the United States, at the Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and also the fictional town of the much easier to say Cedar Creek. I remember this movie in 1995, it was great, proper edge of the seat cinema, and I'm sure every time someone sneezed or coughed in the audience, you paid particular attention. Let's keep moving. Honourable mentions, The Poseidon Adventure and Beyond the Poseidon Adventure. I think I've spoken around those enough. They're definitely a classic Sunday afternoon, New Year's Day holiday movie, shown on free-to-air TV at 3pm when you're full of food and drink. I didn't mention Airplane and Airplane 2. They get a short mention, as do Airport 75, 77 and 79 of the Concorde. All enjoyable if you're in that kind of mood. The Perfect Storm, easily could have been in the top 10. Only the Brave. This movie tells the story of Granite Mountain Hotshots. I watched this recently. These are an elite crew of firefighters from Prescott, Arizona, who lost 19 of 20 members while fighting the Yarnell Hill Fire in June 2013, and it's dedicated to their memory. Another one I could have easily put in the top 10. It definitely beats Backdraft as the best firefighting movie. Maybe I should have put this in instead of Towering Inferno. Or is that just too much irony? Let's keep moving. Gravity. I guess that comes into the disaster movie category. It's a cinematic genius at best especially if you watch it on a huge screen. It didn't make the list as I thought it wasn't quite a disaster movie in the truest sense, and also it is deemed to be realistically accurate, but it did have a few flaws, which I was going to discuss, but you can look them up yourself online. Pompeii, another great movie. Not everybody liked Paul W.S. Anderson's Roman romance disaster picture when it came out. In fact, most people probably hated it, but while it tells a fairly obvious story, Kit Harrington's young gladiator slave falls for Emily Browning's aristocratic beauty on the eve of the decadent Roman city's obliteration from a nearby erupting volcano. Anderson's fast-paced, colourful film offers plenty of visceral thrills, and when Mount Vesuvius finally blows, Pompeii becomes a glorious spectacle of annihilation.
action, as the director lays waste to his sets and characters with all the glee of a young boy melting his action figures. If you actually, if you ever get a chance to see this movie in 3D, highly recommend it. The Last Days of Pompeii in 1959 also gets a bit of a mention. San Andreas, another one that could have easily made the top 10. Dwayne The Rock Johnson plays a helicopter rescue firefighter. Just do my job ma'am, just do my job. Keep moving, let's keep moving. The Wave in 2016. Disaster movies don't always have to rely on apocalyptic events. Sometimes a burning building or a sinking ship can be enough terror for 90 minutes of entertainment. The Wave is actually, considering it's 2016, a bit of a throwback to the 70s heyday of the genre, pitting a small Norwegian village against a fjord-enabled tidal wave. Raw Uthag, great action director name. Or is it actually the best action director name? He takes the time to embolden his main characters, a loving family of four in a small Norwegian village, battling against a fjord-enabled tidal wave, and captures Norway's rolling beauty spectacularly. Then the mayhem starts when the town folk realise their fate and only have 10 minutes to evacuate. The wave capsizes tranquility with 100 tonnes of liquid devastation, not since Titanic has underwater photography looked so terrifying. Let's keep moving. There was 1961's The Day the Earth Caught Fire, another decent movie. Actually, leave it to the British to make one of the more sober disaster movies of all time. Nuclear tests have sent the Earth off its axis, and the planet is now being pulled into the sun again. And there are riots in the streets, and everything is getting pretty hot. But this is as much a zippy, witty journalism film as it is anything else. The effects have dated, as have many of these movies, I guess. But the glimpses of bustling newspaper officers and the attention to journalistic detail are thoroughly engaging. There was 1997 had Dante's Peak and Volcano. I guess that's self-explanatory what they're about. Again, two volcano movies in the same year. Both very good though, I remember watching those at the cinema. In Dante's Peak, Pierce Brosnan is a haunted geologist who comes to a small town to investigate seismic activity and a long dormant volcano, and winds up romancing the mayor and single mother, Linda Hamilton, as they desperately flee deadly clouds of ash. In Volcano, it's Tommy Lee Jones' turn. He's a city emergency manager and a single father who winds up battling rivers of lava and romancing a seismologist. After a newly formed volcano emerges beneath LA, Dante's Peak focuses more on the romance and Volcano more on the insane size of the destruction. Both are supremely ridiculous and supremely entertaining. Combined, actually, they could make up for a master movie that would go on this list. I did say I'd mention the worst movies as well. Is it Sharknado? No. Geostorm? No. Henry, the mild-mannered janitor? Could be. No, different genre. The Hurricane Heist? Definitely not. Not even Titanic 2 gets the vote. Yes, there was a non-related sequel, which to be fair, was definitely so bad, it ends up being pretty good, if that kind of thing floats your boat. All puns intended, as per usual. But the award for the worst disaster movie, for me of all time, undeniably goes to Contagion. One hour and 46 minutes of my life I will never get back. A truly dreadful movie, which begins with a cough and ends with a whimper, has too many characters and silly subplots. It's a star-studded pandemic story that offers style at the expense of thrills, any emotional connection, and at times, logic. It's one of those that has you yawning with heavy eyelids and a compulsion to keep checking the time throughout the movie. And that's one of my pet hits in cinemas when people do that. Anyway, that's all I have to say about that. Let's hit the top 10. Okay, it's decision time. Cue funky countdown music. Let's do this top of the pops chart style, shall we? Let's do it. Off we go. Rocking in at number 10, Earthquake. Number 9, Feel the Rapture. It's End of Days. Number 8, We're Going Deep. Real Deep. 
its deep impact. Let's keep it moving, let's keep it going, burning up the charts at number 7, it's the towering inferno. Number 6, it's old school and the British classic, The Stars Look Down. The stars are looking up at number 5, it's Greenland. Boom, 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 let's keep going, up, 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 top 4, top 4, who's going to make the top 4? At number 4, or should that be, I'm in DC, it's the wandering earth. Top three coming up shortly. Top three, who is it going to be? And number three, I've got that sinking feeling, pop pickers. It's Titanic. Into the top two, who's it going to be? Number two, it's not yesterday, it's the day after tomorrow. Roland Emmerich's epic. Who is going to make number one? Who has blown away all the competition? It's the one, the only, Twister. And there you have it. That's the top 10 for today. It took us two hours almost to get there, and I'm sure if you ask me at any given day, it'll change and even have new entries added. But there you go, that's how my top 10s work, I'm afraid. Well, that was a very, very enjoyable journey through misery and triumph, defeat and victory, love and loss, and all things disastrous. So join me soon for more nonsense and many other top 10s or two. Did somebody mention The Muppets? Monty Python sketches? Or maybe alien movies? What did you say? You want the Muppets next? Okay, we'll do the Muppets next time, shall we? What was that you said? Oh yes, I forgot to talk about the random town. Burn, Albany, New York. I haven't forgotten. It's just taking a lot of research. That might come as a short very soon. Okay, time to go, I think. This has been a long one again, which I like. Can't beat a long one, they all say. But don't forget to subscribe to the Crisket YouTube channel. Still lots of content being put on there. The road to 200 subscribers is well underway. If you type in Crisket, as I said into Google, the YouTube channel is the number one return result. So join the masses and go and listen to Crisket. I'm also experimenting with some with some other football punditry, as it's the Euros at the moment. And there's also a few other things I might put on there in the future. But at the moment, it's the usual ukulele nonsense. Okay, don't forget to like and subscribe to Podcast 42 and tell your friends all about it too. How about I leave you with a quote? A better still... From the movie Traffic, I think this one works quite nicely because it talks about a certain natural disaster. Yes, I'll leave you with this. Bye-bye for now. I can offer you a joke. You want to hear a joke? I got, I, got, I got a joke. I got a joke. Come on, bro. It's just a joke. Let me tell one joke. Can I? I'm going to tell you a joke, okay? All right. Why a hurricane named after woman? I don't know. Because when they arrive, they're wet and wild. When they leave, they take your house and your car. <laughs> It's true. with the run down the line. It's a lovely first touch that takes him inside. And Oates carries on and then he hits it and it came off Armstrong. It's turned and scored! Luke Armstrong for Hartlepool!
break the deadlock in the promotion yes. final. Has to score, or Hartlepool are going up. Buse. Well done, Hartlepool United. Also, it's coming home. Don't tell anybody, but it's coming home.